we wanted to come in and help startups and fashion companies come together because they almost don't even speak the same language. We'd have scientific founders trying to talk to fashion branding people, and it was oil and water. Interesting, there was an appetite for change, but it was like no one really knew how to make it happen. Hey, Carl, how you doing? I'm doing great, Iram. How are you? Spring is in the air. Now that you were out and about, how have things been going for you? Things have been going great. We are seeing more spring. We've got a plum tree in our backyard and it has started to blossom. We have a wonderful bird feeder back there and we see all sorts of little sparrows. But then we also have some blue jays, which are obnoxious. And this woodpecker has appeared and that's very special. And then also these cardinals, the male and female cardinals, I believe the male is bright red. The female is a little bit of a duller orange, but it's really nice to see them out. What have you noticed about <laughs> spring's arrival, Iram? I've been celebrating spring. I mentioned last episode, I enjoyed the cacao ceremony. And then this past weekend, I it was holy. There was a big celebration in Prospect Park that's by us. Holy is a celebration of love and spring and colors. And what you do is you have powdered colors and you're just throwing it all over the place. And it's this beautiful moment. I didn't get to celebrate it with the people in the park. I came and saw the aftermath and there was just like beautiful colors all over the Great Lawn at Prospect Park. And I was just wondering, are those non-toxic colors? Are they made in a biological way? Do we need to get Elliot to provide colors for Holy? Because I just wasn't sure what the life cycle analysis was for those Holy colors. <laughs> Yeah, I did see people covered in different colors. If you've never seen the holy ceremony, look it up on online. It's H-O-L-I. It is quite striking when you see some of the videos of people throwing these colors on each other. I'd never seen it in Prospect Park. It's just one of those things that people are out and happy to celebrate. And I'm glad to have seen the people just covered in the colors. It was a surprise. I usually go on a Sunday morning walk through Prospect Park, but I was there in the afternoon. So it was after the aftermath of Holy, and it just made me smile. Did you ever participate in it? I've never participated in it. All right, we'll do that next year. Or we could do it as maybe not a Holy thing, but like a team event because people have co-opted Holy and they do like color festivals where it's not holy, it's just like people throwing colors at each other, but it's definitely an experience. <laughs> yeah, I'm not such board. a fan of getting dirty that way, <laughs> but we'll leave that for another time. There's been a lot of news. There was South by Southwest, which we had a couple of our clients and friends were down there. So Kate Teen Hair was down at South by Southwest in a beauty house. And then our friend Shara, who is from C16 Biosciences, was there giving a speech about sustainability and business. You pointed out, Iram, that Brooklyn is like South by Southwest all the time. Yeah, there's so many events that are intellectual, that are music festivals, and we are Prospect Park enthusiasts and evangelists. They have a summer concert series called Celebrate Brooklyn. And so that's happening almost multiple times a week during the summertime. And they have great acts. And we can just walk there and see that. You and I met up at a computational biology meetup that happened in Brooklyn. There's always events going on around us. I'm sure South by Southwest is special. I've never been, so I can't really comment on that. I always hear great things, but I always like to think that we live in South by Southwest in perpetuity because we live in Brooklyn. <laughs> There is a statistic. I said it to someone the other day when they said, oh, you live in Brooklyn. What's that like? And I said, 
I'm sure if you thought about it, you would realize that you probably either know someone or have a relative here because it's not even six degrees of separation. It's one degree of separation from someone in Brooklyn. Mm. That's a family member or a friend. Brooklyn has been this melting pot for decades. However, it's worth saying that Queens has more nationalities than any other place in the world. And more foreign languages are spoken in Queens than any other place in the world. And I know that from my mom because my mom was a translator. And when she said that to me, she said she was really surprised to learn that Queens was a place that had the real melting pot of all these different people. And that is one of the really wonderful things about living in New York City. We are about to have a conversation with someone who is in Brooklyn. We joked around that she was part of the Brooklyn biotech mafia because there's a group of us that all know each other. And uh, Amanda Parks is who we're interviewing. And Amanda is the chief innovation officer at Pangaea, which is a material science company disguised as a clothing company. Yeah, materials is huge. We just had a conversation with Suzanne Lee. So Suzanne and Amanda are good friends. Uh, Suzanne kind of gave us the overview of biomaterials and what's going on. And here Amanda is going to talk to us about how they set up their business, how, again, they are a material science company, but they do sell clothing to so direct to consumer, and they have a very interesting approach. So let's just let Dr. Amanda Parks take it off. Let's go. Hey, Amanda, how are you? Hello. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you here with us today, for sure. Let's kick it off. You've been involved and interested in innovative products and biotech for quite some time. We looked at your LinkedIn. And I'm like, wow, this woman is very, very impressive. But what kickstarted your passion in this space? So going back to when I was doing my PhD at MIT, I was looking at interactivity between the digital and physical world. So it was this idea of tangible media. And really, it was thinking about how we can start to utilize the new tools of everything we know about electronics to start to influence the physical world at a very basic level. And I think that what is interstitial between those two spaces is biology, right? And that's where it was. It came through the back door, my, my deep interest in it, but it was really thinking about how do we utilize an interface between digital physical realities and the idea of the exciting way that we can start to influence and augment material behavior, organism behavior. This is part of the whole new breakthrough of this century. And yeah, so it came from the idea of looking at algorithms and biofeedback loops on materials and how do we really have smart code that works in the physical world. And so started working on some various materials, nitinol, et cetera, metals, and then moved into algae and optimizing photosynthesis, which led me to build my first bioreactor and took me down a whole different path. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. <laughs> That's insane. So that took you on the path and you founded a couple of companies since that time. Can you share why you started those companies and what were your key takeaways from that early on in your career? During my PhD, when I was investigating these biofeedback algorithm loops, I was working with a friend on a project that was more about sustainable architecture. I've always been interested in the space of sustainability in general. And he was an optical engineer and was studying all these principles of light and energy. And he came across some research back from the 70s that was looking at how to potentially optimize photosynthesis in microalgae based on the flashing light theory, that if you could have a, a very particular frequency that you would not oversaturate, you fully optimize how much they can grow. 
And at the time, they didn't have the LED technology to do it. So it was a theoretical limit that they were trying to find. And of course, this project got killed in the 80s when there was a lot of interesting energy research in the US in the 70s that kind of has been sitting in stasis, quite frankly, a lot to mine there. And we just started experimenting with it, me from the kind of electrical engineering, coding, mechanical engineering side. Before I was at MIT, I did a mechanical engineering degree at Stanford, so crossover science engineering. And yeah, so we started to put this into practice. We were using this passive lens technology that spread light deep into large volumes of water. And then we're using this flashing light effect, being able to operate it either with LEDs or with sunlight. We used this tiny device that was like a kind of microscopic disco ball that would mechanically move that would make it look like the sunlight was flashing at a very high rate. And so it just started to work. And we were like, hey, let's apply to the MIT 100K business plan competition. We're both engineers. We have no idea. I didn't even know what the term ROI was at the time. So it was like a steep learning curve, but we made it to the finals, the final six teams of that competition. And then suddenly we had a company, we had free legal and all this business <laughs> services and a little bit of money. So we pursued that for a while, like while I was finishing my PhD, it was quite chaotic. And then built this bioreactor system, microalgae photobioreactor system. All of the IP and patents were around the enabling technologies, the code and the electronics and the lensing systems. But it was, of course, an enabling platform for biotech, right? So that was its kind of niche in the market, like to be able to grow denser volumes of algae. It was made originally to think about biofuels and how you can start to scale that up and be cost competitive with fossil fuels. Of course, very quickly, we got into the space of, oh, this is about policy and subsidies and the oil lobbies. And mm -hmm. we went from engineering science to like this deep, dark part of energy politics. So that's a kind of another track. But yeah, we licensed it a bit and then the team splintered. We still have the tech, but yeah, but it was a really good first jaunt into startups. And then I went on to help fund a bunch of different things. I helped found a fashion tech incubator called Manufacture New York. And we were looking at the future of keeping manufacturing inside New York City for fashion, but also using innovation to do that. So there was a lot of startups around fashion tech. Another part of my MIT education was a lot around wearable tech. There's actually a lot of crossover in thinking physical digital interactivity, right? How do we use textile along with electronics? And was working with a lot of startups in that space. So cross material and wearable tech platforms. So that initial technology that you're talking about, the disco ball for increasing algae growth, which I love that analogy. I just want to make it clear to people that when you grow algae in tanks, algae is photosynthetic. So you need light to hit it and you're limited in terms of like how big the tank is because light doesn't penetrate this dark green microalgae. And so being able to have additional sources of light in the bioreactor probably increases yields or something. Yeah, it was a dual system where we had this passive lens that we would basically create a perfect sheet of light into the tank. So it was the kind of idea of total internal reflection. It was like a wedge lens. So that put just as much light at the bottom of the tank. It was literally like a sheet that was going off a point source that spread into a flat surface down. So we have these like lenses slotted into the tank. So that allows us to use less energy and spread the light. As you said, yes, I should have pointed that out. And as the culture gets denser, the light can't penetrate. And the other thing about microalgae is that it actually has a kind of signaling system to save itself where it stops replicating. So it stops growing if it's not getting enough light. So the batch would kill itself off if some of the algae stopped getting light. So it was very important in order to have continuous flow growth that everything is getting a consistent level of light. Okay, so between that particular startup, and then you did several other things. How was it 
that you ended up at Pangaea? What was the immediate predecessor to being there? When I was working with a lot of startups in the space of with Manufacturing New York and with Wearable Tech, I was watching what I considered all the wrong things get funded. This is the era of apps, right? Everything was two, three-year ROI, no real investment in true science infrastructure and all the things we need to address climate change. And so I was seeing partly the investors weren't going after the long-term play. They also maybe weren't fully understanding the science or if something was complicated, they'd shy away from it. Also watching women and founders of color not to get the money that they deserve. There was definitely that old boys network, which I was observing. All of it was just making me really irritated. (laughs) So I got approached by one of the co-founders of Pangaea and Miroslava Duma. So she was starting this fund called Future Tech Lab, which was for material science innovation. She was coming from fashion, the fashion industry, she was in media and an influencer and was just frustrated with all the damage that fashion was doing. And she didn't want to be part of it. So she wanted to switch sides. So she was raising a fund. So I came in as the scientific partner for the fund. I was like, I'm going to, I don't know anything about money really, but I know where I think it should go technically. So I'm going to switch teams. (laughs) So Future Tech Lab was a precursor of Pangaea. It's this similar subset of the founding team there. And what actually happened was we were investing. We spent two years really traveling the globe and really landscaping everything in this material area, what's emerging, that it's things that are simultaneously breakthrough innovation around functionality, but also have a sustainable profile, which I think we all know in science, oftentimes those things are diametrically opposed. So we wanted to figure out where the technologies were to bring those two ideas together. So the highest tech with the most sustainable solutions and mapping that space and started investing. And what we were seeing was especially inside of fashion, we were focused on textiles, but looking more broadly at materials. We thought there's a massive opportunity. Both of us had been inside fashion in various ways and nothing was changing. The things I learned from Silicon Valley, I'd consulted with Intel and Google and various companies along the way. I was running my own kind of mini design consultancy. I was teaching at Columbia and at NYU and various things. And Silicon Valley, the companies there, they own the means of their own production. They're designing the future of their industry. Apple, Google, they're creating IP, they're buying companies, they're maneuvering where their industry should go. And that wasn't happening with the big fashion companies. Like they're not doing their own internal research. It's very strange, the trajectory of how textiles make it into the market. It's this mixture of stuff that's coming from military, like protective gear, that kind of thing. It's all DARPA research. If you look at MIT, all the fiber science research is DARPA and DOD funded, which to me, like that was very jarring at the beginning until I understood it. Or there's like work for sports engineering, but all that is really over-designed for basic clothing functionality. So it's very odd. The the supply chain was not a logical, sensible engineering thing to me, which I thought, we can change this. So let's get in there and start working on the textiles that are there. What we found was that we were investing in these companies. The fashion industry wasn't meeting the startups halfway. We all know about this issue or the valley of death when you're in technology or innovation readiness level in the middle. So you have a big lab breakthrough in the early stages. And then at the end, there's a lot of people when when it's feasibly commercial, people coming in with money at the end. But that middle version where you need quite a bit of money for scale up and it's real like touch and go whether or not it's going to work. We wanted to come in and help startups and fashion companies come together because they almost don't even speak the same language. We'd have scientific founders trying to talk to fashion branding people and it was oil and water. Interesting, there was an appetite for change, but it was like no one really knew how to make it happen. So that was where our role came in with Pangaea. So we started, we're like, oh, we can start demonstrating that we can make responsible, beautiful products from these new materials at a reasonable cost and that kind of thing. And then the brand, it was supposed to be just a sort of demonstrator brand for our fund. 
the brand took off. There was a clear appetite for the clothes. And also, to be fair, we were making very cool loungewear when we all went into lockdown <laughs> with COVID. So perfect sustainable tracksuit that nobody ever took off during COVID. That was our kind of initial growth spurt. It's super interesting to me that you say that a lot of this material research was going on in the military because there's a William Gibson book called Zero History, which is about a pair of camouflage pants that someone wants to turn into streetwear. You start to realize how much the military's research and development impacts our daily lives. Yeah. What you've done with Future Tech Lab is, is very similar to that. But I'm just curious just to stay on Future Tech Lab a little bit more. You said that Pangaea took off, but you're still involved with Future Tech Lab and that Pangaea yeah. was really supposed to be a demonstrator. How do those two work for you now? What's your role at each one? Future Tech Lab isn't actively investing anymore. We have the fund, the, the portfolio, and we manage it, right? But the we've actually transferred over the investment and innovation model into Pangaea. So part of our business model inside Pangaea is these kind of interesting development agreements, which is when you work with an innovator, you potentially do small investment, very strategic, and then maybe co-development of a product. How do you guys meet each other halfway? Here's a new chemistry innovation that it needs to be turned into a fiber and into a textile and into a garment and into product, right? We can literally take over their process. So we don't need scientists and innovative biologists and chemists making fashion brands, that's not a good use of their time. So we've set up the whole infrastructure to be able to develop the product, meet them halfway, get the innovation happening in factories and never underestimate the kind of diplomacy you have to get factories to do new things. This is a huge other part we can talk about. So now that we have trusted factory partners and we have a, a couple of joint ventures in this space, we have a lot more leverage to make things happen and especially at small scales. And let's try this out, which is just leverage that startups don't have inside a fashion factory. So that was a big part of it. So the model would be co-develop a product and then have a kind of commercialization agreement where we also sell our materials B2B, which is something else that's different about our model where there's this focus in fashion about exclusivity and this and that, which is wrong as a way to, first of all, we want to change the industry fast. And in order to do that, we have to share the innovation and it helps everyone. And then on top of that, I really believe in one of the reasons I love fashion so much is it's a language of personal expression and it's all about diversity, how you want to represent yourself. And so we need lots of brands in the world. There shouldn't be only one look and I don't believe in the uniform and that, that kind of idea. But this idea that we could actually be the enabling technology. So the kind of Intel inside model for all these beautiful brands to have better materials that also helps our bottom line. That's the back end of our business. That just seemed like a no-brainer to me. Now, it's hard to put into place because you're being a textile agent, you're being a brand. There's a lot of working parts to it, and we're still figuring that out. We're only three and a half years old, and we've grown a lot. That's part of the model is to share the innovation across the industry so everyone can grow and change together. Why does the fashion industry need these kinds of change? What is it about materials? What is it about sustainability? What is it about supply chains in fashion that don't work? So first of all, I think we can be in agreement here that we need to rid the world of fossil fuel, virgin fossil fuel input as much as we can, right? 60% of all garments in the world have some form of synthetic in them, which is virgin fossil fuel, polyesters, 
nylon. It's become the mass market material. So when people think about, oh, I'm using fuel and all these kinds of things, they don't necessarily think about their clothes in the same way. And so that's a major thing. And also the whole way we use cheap polyesters and stuff is actually even more detrimental because of they're constantly being washed and releasing microplastics, which we haven't even scratched the surface of the damage that's doing. <laughs> right. So it's this kind of duality where you make the thing, you manufacture it, and then you release it into the world in these tiny particulates, which infect soil and water and animals and plants. And so it's incredibly important to remove that. The other point is that we have lots of other amazing materials that we can use for clothes. It was this, I get it, like oil was a sexy development in the 30s and 40s. It made sense to utilize it and think about it, but we've somehow got to this place where it's a design problem. It's a mismatch where you're saying, we're going to take this material that was engineered to literally last forever. That's one of the amazing things about it, but we're going to put it into things that are basically disposable, you know, disposable plastic bottles, et cetera, and then clothes that are not intended to last in the way that leather and wool maybe would. So I think that what our material philosophy inside of Pangaea is what we call high-tech naturalism, where we're looking at where are there places in nature where there's an abundance so things like agricultural waste and even places where we've created abundance like carbon. <laughs> so carbon utilization and, and sinking. And then we can use new sustainable science, chemistries, biology, et cetera, to augment those natural systems, right? So that's how we've taken on this problem. So first of all, just getting rid of fossil fuels from the supply chain, promoting biodiversity. Cotton is an amazing fabric, of course, and amazing fiber. There's a reason why we've utilized it so much for centuries. But of course, we've now gone to a place where we've over-industrialized it and are monocropping it. The point is to say there's so many other plants and fibers out there in the world that we can use. And we just need to get on that development stream. We're many, a thousand years ahead on cotton development, right? So there's other things. So we just, the idea that we can start creating a balanced ecosystem where we're using what nature is giving us, the things that want to grow together, regenerative agricultural systems, and that those fibers will have different properties that we can take advantage of. And then there's the other direction where we start to think about, we want the properties in synthetic. No one wants to give up their athleisure, right? We want our spandex elastane. We're not suggesting that we go backwards into wool, wool sacks. But the point is that we have the technological tools in terms of new chemistries to mimic those molecular structures and those functionalities with bio-based molecules. So that's the direction of what does it mean to have a biosynthetic? And I, I think that we'll start to see the merging of those two things. It's okay, this fiber is grown. So this is a pure cotton fiber. Then you have what we call man-made cellulosics, which are in the middle where you're kind of turning natural material into a slurry and extruding it. So you're in this in-between space or we're doing something to it. And then there's the kind of full chemical synthesis. But if you start from responsible ingredients, so bio-based or things that will allow the structure to be biodegradable or have an end-of-life profile that's responsible, then you can start to mimic those properties. I think that the other problems are, of course, things like dyes, finishes, lots of invisible things that we do. So even if you have a pure organic cotton t-shirt, it might be treated with something that's hugely toxic that has environmental repercussions or will allow it to not become biodegradable. There's a lot of the secret things that have happened in fashion. They're shortcuts to, to get functionality for a very cheap cost. There's just so much opportunity for change. I think that's where we're going. And if you think about it, there's very few technologies in the world where every single person on the planet owns a textile, owns clothing, right? It's a basic human need. So there's one thing where people go, oh, fashion industry, it's glamorous and whatever. Like it's not seen as real engineering or science, but oh my God, it's incredibly high tech when you think about all the things we can do with these tiny threads. There's just so much opportunity because it's under-examined for innovation. Yeah, that's wonderful that the principles of the company do surround sustainability and it's clear why you're chief innovation officer of Pangaea. 
But I'm curious, what do you do on a daily basis as chief innovation officer? I chose that title. It could be chief scientist, but I think it goes a little bit more broadly. So I do develop our scientific strategy for the company. This idea of high tech naturalism and our research pillars and values, along with our chief impact officer and both of our teams. But really, the idea is to say, what are we going to be doing that can come out in six months or a year, what's available now, that's the best kind of best practices, pushing innovation, what's two, three years down the road, and then what's in seven or 10 years, which I don't think there's almost no one in fashion that's really saying what is going in in the fiber science laboratories that are of the military, right? Going back to my MIT and Stanford background and really trying to think about what makes sense to pull in and how do we lay a sustainability lens over innovation. Luckily, the industry is slowly turning on research. There would be these two tracks, like I mentioned, here's research into functionality and high performance. And then here's research into something sustainable. And hello, we need to do it together. And that's what's starting to happen a little bit as well. So my daily role is I lead our team of scientists and we have a kind of internal Pangaea team of scientists And then we have some external joint ventures. We have labs in manufacturing in Italy and Portugal, as well as we then have a whole giant amount of innovators that we're working with directly and releasing product with. And then a whole lot more that we're talking to, just talking to all the startups and understanding how we can work together to get product out. And also we're doing early stage research where we see holes, right? So if we see someone doing something fantastic, like for example, our collaboration with Colorifix, which I think is one of our main biofabricated products, this the bacterial dye, we want to work with them and jump on board, not reinvent the wheel and start that over. We want to be the person who can bring their dyes out into the market and literally work with them. Like we have a kind of three-way partnership with our facility, it's a bioreactor, literally installed in the dye facility in Portugal. So grow the microorganism, put them in the drought, right? That's really exciting to me when that happened because it was my two worlds colliding, this super high-tech bioreactor sitting next to traditional dye drum and fashion factory and moving that process forward. So working with innovators in that way. So my day will be split between probably the most external person, like always out there trying to find new things, meet people so you can stay on the cutting edge and then working through like all the strategic pieces of where we're going to be going. And then my amazing team will put everything into place management wise. And then I also do a lot of press and communication. And we definitely, from the beginning of the company, SADA is really important where we have a whole strategy around science communication. And that's really part of what we have to do as a brand. It's our responsibility to explain things, to not greenwash. On our direct-to-consumer retail website, we have a section called science, which explains everything. And it's like the nerd section which I call it, but you can go there as a reference. We want to be as transparent as possible and also explaining this is where we're at. It's not perfect yet, but where we're going is here. A lot of the issues which come up around people hesitate being transparent is that they don't want to get called out. Like they've done a couple of things to advance sustainability and then consumers, people come in and say, what about the rest of it? And we have to have this, we're in this together mental model like we're recognizing that it's not finished, but isn't it we're on a path and we're investing in this. And when you buy our clothing, it goes directly into our lab research to get us to the next place and not just into celebrity campaigns or whatever. There's a give back in this is we have philanthropy and impact measurements for the brand, but there is also you're directly funding scientific research. 
know, you're just wearing, it's just a pair of sweatpants, but <laughs> there is a back end. There's a whole lot going on underneath. I was just going to say that I think a lot of consumers are becoming more mission-driven in their purchasing and the fact that there is a thoughtful science behind it. What are some of the materials that you have created at Pangaea or you collaborated with and what's that functionality look like? Like I said, so our portfolio is hybrid between things that we've developed or joined early in on research and have the joint patent on or something and patents and trademarks. And we're not obsessed with patents in the way people are trying to measure that. A lot of the kind of intellectual property around these innovations is there's lots of small things about process tech and just getting it to market and being first to market and being the best person to make it as much as the patent itself. There's lots of ways to get around the kinds of patents. So we do that, of course, but it's broader in terms of what we think of as our expertise. Like our first patented material is called Flower Down. And this is a great example of our high-tech naturalism philosophy. So it's an alternative to goose down or animal down that has no petrochemical, no fossil fuel synthetics in it. This is really important because one of my pet peeves is when people call things like vegan leather and <laughs> no, it's mean, plastic. It's it plastic. It's, yeah. yeah. So you assume it was plant-based. It's not ever because that hasn't been developed properly yet. We're getting there. So this is made from a particular kind of part of a waste wildflower. And it's combined with biopolymer and cellulosic aerogel, which allows it to have a kind of durability structure and increase its thermal property so it can compete on the warmth meter with traditional down. So this is this ideal solution where it is 100% plant-based it has a compostability profile, et cetera. So this one we release in our puffer jackets. We're also sell to other brands. And this is one of those things where as we develop the material, we do what we call like material iterations. In the same version, it's like thinking like with an iPhone, when you have an iPhone five or six, and the next one comes out, it's not that the other one was terrible. It's just that you've gotten to a better place. So we're continuously trying to evolve our materials. And we also have a really interesting portfolio of agricultural waste blends that we've been working on. For example, the banana plant that is not the fruit. So we're not competing with the food chain, but it's literally the part that gets cut off. That's not the tree, but just this other biomass piece that has a really incredible fiber and developing that supply chain with partners along the way. I keep joking that eventually we're just going to own a farm. We're getting very close. There's a little investment slowly going in, and but either that or an entire fermenting factory, which, you know, maybe we're, we're going to own a brewery. <laughs> right. <laughs> but turn it, but start use, using it for algae. But so we combine things like pineapple, banana, and also seaweed, algae, eucalyptus. We have a breakthrough in nettle. Gosh, Himalayan nettle is the most incredible fiber. It's 10 times stronger than even hemp. Literally the first time we put it into some of the machines, we we're making denim with it. it broke one of the machines. Nettle, nettle. Yeah. Amazing. Like stinging nettle, but yeah, but it grows. This is one particular version that grows in, in just in the Himalayas. We did the processes with a women's collective. So there's like secondary income going in, in an area where there is no really way, there's no jobs or so that kind of thing. And it grows wild and it regenerates and all the story, both like social and social. Amazing. It's fantastic. And the fiber is fantastic. It's just, it's been really hard to tame. <laughs> so we have denim experts in Italy and Turkey. So it's just about finding the, the people that are willing to tweak and work on it and are excited about it. But yeah, so we have that. And then we have our partnerships that really, I mentioned Colorifics. We released the first ever biofabricated hoodie with Spiber last year. That was a yes. long time in the process. We all love Spiber. They're an incredible 
company. What's important for to point out to people in fashion is it seems like these innovations are coming really slowly, but my gosh, these biotech companies have been working on this stuff, what, 15 years to get to this place. And of course, it's still relatively expensive. And what we're doing is adding in a small percentage and mixing it with organic cotton as we go. So again, this material upgrading process to keep it affordable. Can you explain what Spiber is? Yeah. So it's brood protein. So the company was originally founded on looking at basically the DNA of spiders and how they create silk. So they've analyzed that, but they've gone a step further, which is to literally build the DNA blocks of the protein synthesis from the ground up. So they're not just extracting the exact strands from Spiber. They've done that, analyzed it, figured out how to build it themselves, and then rebuilt it into this brood protein structure, which now they can make a whole bunch of different materials. So it's really an incredible kind of material building block system that does have a 15-year history behind it. Their production facility in Japan is literally, you went forward 50 years. It has that feeling of, oh my God, this is future biotech for sure. We released a hoodie with them. And for example, we also released a carbon utilization project with a startup called 12, which is pulling two from air and then transforming it into basically some of the base chemical building blocks for different plastics. And now there are places where plastics do make sense. Like there's a lot of things we can do with bioplastics and replacements, but when plastics make sense, it's for very high functional, high utilization. So we made polycarbonate lenses for sunglasses out of this, and that's a responsible use for something that will last and not break down and not give off microplastics, et cetera. They're not early stage, but they're not fully at chemical industry scale up. I joke around that it's our couture polycarbonate because it was handmade in the lab. It took us like three months just to make the plastic for the lenses. But yeah, so stuff like that, that is really pushing forward. So we have a section of our company called Pengaya Lab, which is where we release these innovations. And it's like our beta testing. But the point is that everything in lab, it's not a concept car model. It's everything in there has a path to commercialization, a path to scale up, right? We don't want to release something and then we're going back here, but it's about how we transition it into our standard product lines as the price comes down or as we get better at manufacturing it or all those things. So it's really testing. We make do smaller quantities, also more responsible manufacturing. And I think we haven't even talked about volumes and waste and all that too, because we have whole other tracks on that. But yeah, at some point we should have you come back on and just talk about those things, because those are things that are fascinating that most consumers don't have any idea about what does the path look like from cotton field to my black t-shirt that I go to Uniqlo to buy because there's so many steps along the way. But you've been talking about your product portfolio and early on in the conversation, you mentioned that you launched three years ago and you had this athleisure tracksuit that was very popular. Could you describe what that was and what's the best-selling products that you guys have right now? Yeah. So we launched with just a very simple organic cotton tracksuit just to start. It was one of those models of best in practice. Let's establish everything from the ground up, designing everything about the supply chain. There's one of those models where it's easier when you're setting up the brand. If you design everything responsibly, that's easier than trying to change things after. That's one of the advantages that we have. So we were establishing those partners and then also working on the textile. I think one of the things that's underappreciated is we all know when we like fall in love with something for how it feels, right? So there's this concept of the science of feel, right? And I think it's not quantified very well, either scientific language or whatever. We all kind of order something online you've gotten and have been like, eh, right? And everyone kind of tries to equate that, the data with, oh, it doesn't fit. And I'm not really sure that I think just as many returns come from, it just doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. Get these comments back being like, I can't take off my tracksuit. I never wear anything else anymore. You ruin the rest of my clothes. And that was about really developing 
the feel of this, like being very careful. It's as if it was the circuit board of, a, of an Apple, right? Or the interface, just really nuanced. And also the design, we have like a French couture designer making a hoodie. So like it's perfectly weighted on your shoulders and it will change the pattern slightly with a different weight of fabric. Those real nuances when you know a product is good. And that's what we were going after in there. We're not apologizing that's organic cotton. And then we're moving towards adding in seaweed, seaweed blends. We started working on agricultural waste. And now we're creating this product portfolio, which has all different mixtures of, of different materials in them. And then we expanded a little bit into things like leather accessories. So the first 100% bio-based leather Miram, we have a portfolio in that, of small products in that. The best-selling product is still our hoodie. We make it in plant fiber, we make it in fruit fiber, we make it in cotton, all responsible. And then we play around with the different dye technologies and finishing technologies. You can get a color fix hoodie. So that's part of the plan is to have what we considered like iconic lifestyle pieces. So the perfect tracksuit that you can wear and then play around with the materials and everything else about it. So we're what we consider like a lifestyle basics brand. And that's our kind of signature, but we also want other brands in fashion to make other kinds of things. We're not going to make evening gowns or never say never. Our core is in things like t-shirts, tracksuits, denim. We have a couple of blazers, jackets, puffers, right? So athletic, outdoor, not extreme performance. We're going for this idea of everyday wear. And then, yeah. Yep. And you're wearing a piece now because this might be on YouTube eventually. I'm wearing one of our t-shirts. This is one of my favorite colors, galaxy pink. Yeah. And the so blazer too? Or? Blazer, the blazer is not. And this is, I actually like to mix up our pieces with other things. This is just a linen blazer that I love, but I think one of the other things that I'm a big fan of is platforms like Rent the Runway. Pangai is like your lifestyle basics and staples. So I'm always wearing a tank top, a t-shirt, our little Miram wallets and these kinds of things, right? These little accessory bits. This is actually from the other one way. I ended up purchasing it, but you can try out lots of different brands and lots of different styles, return them, get that hit that I definitely get it from fashion, like the fun, the personal expression, creative piece of it, and then be able to have a sharing economy around the pieces that you don't need to own. It's yeah. more fun to have them for a little bit and then trade them in. So I like the mixture on purpose. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I do sometimes wear all Pangaea too, of course. But yeah, yeah, I asked because when I first met you at Biofabricate, you were wearing like this seafoam green blazer. Yes, that's it- ours. We do have a blazer. It's more oversized. Yeah. 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 I love that one. That was really cool. Yeah. And I think I was wearing our, also our uh, athletic or like tank top and leggings. Yeah. Yeah. You represent. Like, not, not hardcore gym. You can't wear in the gym, but more, <laughs> yeah, athleisure style work. Yeah. Amanda, you talked about thinking ahead in terms of materials and the materials that'll be available to designers. Are there materials that you're excited about right now? And what does that look like in five, 10 years? And then how will those materials be impacted by the changing climate. I'm definitely excited for all the different streams of agricultural waste and all the things we can do with plants that we don't even know yet. And same thing with sourcing different colors and both kind of from a biofabricated place as well as from natural systems. And we haven't even begun to explore what's available to us underwater in the fungal kingdom and like things that we only associate with plastic right now, like transparency, like there are natural ways that do that. There's transparent fish and waterproofing. I'm quite obsessed with the ocean in general and scuba diver and surfer and go up on the beach and everything. So I just think that's 
super untapped, the more we can get in there, obviously super responsibly. So it's not about mining or over. <laughs> yeah, please ban but, ocean mining immediately. Yeah, no, no, that's not, the point is that there are a lot of regenerative systems like our seaweed. We do use farm seaweed for our seaweed fabric or textile, but we are also looking at waste streams. What you want to do is start with something with like with science, you know, the variables, you know exactly what you're going to get and then get that perfected and then move into a waste stream, which you have to process or somehow convert and characterize and everything. So it's just another order of magnitude of work. But then when that happens, then you have this basically never-ending free supply of waste. There's a huge upside when you get it sorted out. You no longer have to farm, you just collect. So that's, I'm generally excited about that. And then I love thinking about soil health and microbes and how you can really transition soil. We were in a conversation this morning about regenerative agriculture. And one of the critiques of it is how do we justify it if the yield is lower and we have the hunger problem, food scarcity problem in the globe? And so how do we start to use biology, whether it be microbes or genetically modified crops? That's controversial, understood. Pesticides are not the answer to the yield, right? We need to find the biological solution, but we may have to slow down on crop yield for a little while while we put the solutions in place. But I think we can start putting biofabricated solutions to supplement, right? It's about having this two-tiered, multi-tiered technology and biology approach. I'm excited about enzymes. Also, I think we're moving towards a feedstock crisis. And I'd love for you guys to have someone on this podcast just to talk about feedstocks. As we grow biofabricated technologies, we need things to feed the microbes. We can't just feed them sugar all the time. Yeah. We have to start thinking about they need to eat less, they need to eat other kinds of ways. So I think research into next generation feedstocks is I think super interesting as well. And how enzymes add to that. And can we feed waste as a feedstock is a really interesting part of closing that loop. Yeah, we had a conversation with Kate Teen Hair, which is a biotech company disguised as a hair care company. Someone was asking this question to them about this products versus a biotech company in Silicon yeah, Valley. Sure. And many of their products are produced with yeast that is fed sugar. And that sugar is grown in Brazil. And Brazil has this big problem where they chop down the rainforest to grow lots of things. And I never really thought about the sugar thing, because for me, at least it's always been like, look, we're chopping down the rainforest so that we can grow protein, either soy or meat. And we turn that into leather or we use soybean. And how does it make sense? But I think you're absolutely right. We need people to understand what are feedstocks in general. And then what are these alternative feedstocks of the future going to be? Biofabrication seems quite magical in the sense that you grow something in the lab, but it's not until you start thinking about the scale up that you're like, Microbes still need to eat. There's no free lunch. Everything does take resources of some kind. It's just where are you taking them from? And so that part of it, we need to be smart. As we develop biofabrication technologies, we also have to develop the feedstock along with it, or else we're going to get ourselves into a crisis. Clearly, Amanda, you're very academically minded and you're doing this commercially at Pangaea, but you're also teaching. Can you tell us about what you're teaching, where you're teaching, and how the students receiving that lecture? Yeah. So I was teaching at Columbia in the architecture school. This was a few years ago, but I was teaching sort of classes that were lots of things that architects need to know that aren't exactly architecture. So alternative energy strategies, technology in the body and environment, and a, a class on biomaterials. This was quite a while ago now. I started at seven or eight years ago when it was quite weird. But yeah, I took a break from teaching for a little while during when things were ramping up with FTL and, and Pangaea. And I've just gone back to Harvard. So I'm teaching a studio class on sustainable textile ecology, which is joined between the Masters of Design Engineering and the Graduate School of Design. So it's a nice mixture of kind of engineer science designers. And there's some lecturing, of course, but it's a studio, so it's a little bit more self-guided project. 
And it's just interesting to see how the students think the problems are, and then how do they start to answer those with their skills. This is the first time I've taught where I think some of the students were born in this century, which kind of (laughs) scared me a little. I was like, whoa, okay. They should, yeah. We're not necessarily even alive during 9-11, right? So We have employees who are born in this century. (laughs) They grew up with ecological sustainable problems. And so they're the first kind of gen to have a flip side where there's part of them that are kind of already tired of it. There is no engineering degree without considering this because there is no future without it. And I think Harvard actually trying to make institutional change. They have the new Salada Institute for Climate, where it's supposed to be like everything we teach should be through a lens of how is it better for the world? How do we create longevity, whether it be science or economics or whatever? So coming together across disciplinary, it's great. The students have access to all sorts of fabrication labs, including bio labs. So there's some interesting work. And I do love it when creatives or other forms of engineering kind of cross pollinate. That's where we get really interesting ideas. I come from that MIT Media Lab, which is definition of that. Be good at one thing and then do something totally else. (laughs) Use those skills to do something totally else is where we're at. A lot of concern, of course, around waste and projects in that medium. And also people definitely interested in educating their peers. The things that we were lecturing on, the professors I teach with, an architect and someone who's a creative director for a big brand, a kind of a nice balance of wow, we didn't know that everyone needs to know that kind of thing too. It's been a very positive experience, except for the Amtrak. What is it? The best tech corridor in the US or something between, or in the world, like between New York and Boston, and we have the most dysfunctional train system. What's worse is it costs twice as much as taking a plow. I do travel a lot for work and we always get the question, oh, carbon footprint of travel. I saw the statistic recently, all of aviation and travel is something like, I I should get the exact numbers, but it's like 2.7% of carbon usage. You know what just the sneaker industry is? This is not the whole fashion industry, just sneakers, 1.7%. That's amazing. I'll get dig up the reference for you. But I think when people think about orders of magnitude, we actually have ways to solve like algae jet fuel is great. That's where we're going for is if we can make these fuels and we can have carbon neutral travel, we're going there is if we can get the prices down. And that's a whole other political question about (laughs) fossil fuel lobby and incentives. But I think that people are underestimating what's happening in the fashion industry in general. Just to build on that, I'm not going to name manufacturers, but the way I understand it in the shoe industry is that they basically produce every year something like four shoes for each person on the planet. And that sounds about right. I should yeah. find that out. Actually. And on the one hand, that sounds great, but that is totally unsustainable because most sneakers, and I'll point at sneakers, happen to be made out of multiple kinds of materials that together are unrecyclable. So it's a problem. And I know the manufacturers are working on these problems, but how can you shoe everybody for 4X every year? Outside of the materials, which is, of course, my area, but Lots of sustainability strategies around design for disassembly and mono materials. We're thinking holistically about here's a product that everything in it has the same end of life profile, whether it be combustibility or biodegradability, or if you can't do that, then can you take it apart easily or all these mechanisms, which we need infrastructure around what's really challenging is like, usually the manufacturers have the lowest margins. They have the least amount to really put into innovation. This is a big problem. I think if the brands were investing in upgrading factories and factory processes and giving them a bigger portion of the profit as opposed to celebrity campaigns, you'd have a totally different industry. That's what happens in other kinds of tech, right? You invest in your own manufacturing in some way or another. You're not going to have a shoddy factory making iPhones. You might, but like high-tech factories that make printed circuit boards are amazing, amazingly high tech. And that's not what you see in fashion. I can count them 
one hand the number of high-tech factories I've seen in fashion, but it's Amazing. possible. Yeah. There is one final question that we usually ask all of our guests, and it really has to do with being inspired and culture. And where do you go to get inspired, specifically about like biotechnologies or a movie or a book? Aside from reading all of your academic papers and material spec sheets, like what do you like to read or what do you recommend to our audience? Yeah. First of all, the main place I go is the ocean. Get underwater, get like scuba, sound off calm, just looking at nature in its purest form. That to me is the most inspiring and just gets things going. So yeah, a lot of it is just back to nature for me. But of course, I do read things as well. One of my favorite books is The Invention of Nature, which is a biography of Alexander von Humboldt, who's like the lost hero of science. All of his work was basically enabled Darwin to do what he could do. His life was like one big adventure around the globe, exploring things. I wish they would make it into an action adventure movie. It's like 19th century naturalist Iron Man. I think it would be so cool. Be very wow. So that's one book that I love. And then I've just been digging into more recently, the latest book of Bruno Latour, Facing Gaia, which is eight lectures on climate regime, which is just important to stay grounded. And when you have really big thinkers and philosophers contributing to scientific thought and just makes it feel holistic and comes full circle of like, why are we even doing this? So those are two, they're different ends of the spectrum. And then I just, I also love fashion. Like I, <laughs> I can go shopping and just be, just feel inspired and color and art, you know, art design, all that stuff. The reason that I want to make change in the industry is a lot of people are saying, oh, we should just, yes, we should consume less with a lot of things with sustainability. There's this place where you get to, you can get really cynical, right? You're like, basically what we should all do, the best thing we should all do for the earth is commit suicide. It's very dark. The point is that we have to figure out where's the line of what makes life worth living and creativity and personal expression. So we need to figure out how to live in tune with nature, we have enough innovation to be able to build and make things and create and produce. We just have to do it within planetary boundaries. Oh, I also love Donut Economics from yeah. Kate Raworth. That honestly, I took Econ 101 at Stanford. We were required to. And I remember thinking, I must be really bad at this because it doesn't make any sense. It's this idea of continuous growth. It defies the laws of physics, right? I'm studying physics, engineering, right. science. I'm taking econ and I'm like, how can the financial market is eventually tied to some kind of physical good, right? But they're just, they just black box it. And so I just thought, I guess I just don't understand. And then when I read Donor Economics, I was like, finally, this is like economics that makes sense in the realm of the physical world. I think it's just a genius way and it's readable in the diagrams and oh gosh, it's so legible from a really lovely point of scientific communication. So yeah, it's an amazing book. You're here in New York City. We're in New York City. I think New York City is in a really amazing place around biotech innovation and material innovation, the new center, the Center for Planetary Health and the materialization. Of this. I've been here for just over 10 years and I brought the algae company here at first and couldn't find a space for it. Ended up in a crazy building in Brooklyn that where the landlord would let us have hoses on the roof and that kind of stuff, right, to do it. But I'm so excited now to see this transition where there's real infrastructure and People are paying attention that this is something that we can really do as a city. It has the kind of the perfect cross-section of kind of talent and resources. So I feel like it's a really exciting time right now here. Thank you for saying that. So Sabria Stukes, who's the chief scientific officer at IndieBio said, when she gets asked, what does New York need? She says, we don't need anything. We've already got it. And yeah. I think, as you say, over the last 10 years, we were in a conversation earlier where we were talking about, I've been in New York for an amazing 30 years. And for the first 10, 15, 20 years, I heard people talking about how New York biotech was going to be so great and all these things were happening. 
And it's really just been in the last 10 where I'm starting to see a big difference in the last five, especially. And I feel like we're growing exponentially. So I'm very excited about New York Biotech. Cool. Yay. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. We would love to have you back on. Thank you so much. Thanks. Wow. What an amazing episode. I have known Amanda for a few years, but I feel like I didn't really know her until we had this conversation with her. Yeah, it's a podcast, especially interview format is a good way to get to know people and learn about their stories and their journey. I am very impressed to hear that she built a bioreactor. How cool is that, Carl? I hope that the people who listen to this kind of understood what we were talking about when you're growing algae in a bioreactor, that algae, given that it's photosynthetic, it needs sunlight. If sunlight cannot penetrate into the vessel that you're growing the algae in, you're going to limit the amount of growth. Amanda did talk about that a little bit. But I think it was super interesting to hear how Pangai was built out of this frustration that Amanda and her co-founder had at the way investors were only investing in white dudes. And there were all these amazing entrepreneurs, we see them all the time, women and people of color that are being neglected by mainstream investors. I'd like to think that's getting better and Mm -hmm. we have a ways to go. Yeah, hopefully better. They always say that the idea behind solving that is having more women investors and investors of color. And then there was like another perspective where the limited partners that put money in investment funds should also be representative. But I heard that there were a lot of female limited partners. So that wasn't necessarily maybe a solution, but I think it's all about being intentional in who you're investing in. And I've met so many funds when I was raising money for my previous startup that were like female focused, focusing on people of color, people of different backgrounds, not necessarily, again, like a white male from MIT or has an MBA, which an MBA necessarily isn't indicative of having a startup. I think these days people see that since all of these very successful startup entrepreneurs tend to drop out of college. But anyway, we're digressing. I just really enjoyed hearing about the fashion industry and how Pangaea positioned themselves right in the middle of all of the material scientists and then direct to consumers. And they, they also work with factories and all of the different brands too. So they really are trying to be more collaborative, right? In a economy where people are tend to be very competitive, it was really refreshing to hear how they approach collaboration and how that has made them stronger. What you're saying reminds me of a wonderful series of articles that Arvind Gupta, one of the co-founders of IndieBio wrote probably now about five years ago called the $100 trillion opportunity. And it was really talking about the growth of synthetic biology and its applications across all industries. But one of the points that Arvind made in that paper was you could look at the amount of money that's being spent in research and development in a particular industry to game out the innovation that was going to happen in that industry. And his point was that one of the industries where the most innovation was happening or the most investment was happening was in pharmaceuticals, which is where biotech traditionally been applied. But we are seeing that investment and that research and development being applied across all industries. And so it's really fascinating to think about what happens when the fashion industry or a company like Pangaea comes along and they're funding that research and development. They're developing the materials. And as Amanda says, they're not just developing them for exclusivity. They want to share them and they want to share their innovations with other people across the industry. So I think that was really smart and fascinating. Yep. And not only their innovations, but innovations of other startups that are tangential or in parallel with what they're doing. They mentioned 
colorifics that makes beautiful dyes for clothing, Spiber. I can't wait. We need to get someone from there. We had met a few of their founders and executives at Biofabricate last year. Hopefully they'll be in Paris this year when we go. It's incredible about how they've raised money. And I want to go to that factory that Amanda mentioned that was 50 years in the future. That's just, I feel like Tokyo. When I went there, I did feel like I teleported into the future. And then they mentioned 12, which is similar to Lanza Tech, taking pretty much air or carbon emissions and turning it into high value products. So very cool companies. Hopefully we can get them on and talk to them as well and hear about their partnerships and what they're doing. Yeah. And there's a number of companies that are using gas, I'll say methane, waste emissions that I think are worth mentioning. Two companies, one is industrial microbes, and then the other is mango materials. And we should talk to Molly to get caught up to her and see how they're doing. But I also, given that our focus is science and communications, I really appreciated that Amanda said that was something they focus on. They try not to overhype. They try to tell people where things are and where we're going so that they're not greenwashing, which we know isn't an issue. And so that people understand what it is that we're doing when it comes to precision fermentation and maybe getting away from the GMO label, but just helping people understand that what we're trying to do is save the planet. I've probably said this before. We need all solutions all the time as fast as possible. <laughs> Anytime I hear or talk about or hear you talk about the emissions into products, it just get a little ping in my heart because I was working with a company that was doing that 10 years ago. I remember. And it was just so early stage, but I'm so happy to see now that it has blossomed. Your timing is everything, but just incredible product market fit. We were actually looking more at materials, more on the carbon nanomaterials not necessarily graphene, but other things, but it just, anytime I hear it, I'm just like, okay, hi. You were there. <laughs> hi, past life. But yeah. And then of course, there's so much new science that comes up when we talk to people like Amanda and others. She mentioned the science of feel. I'm so curious. I want to go into that. That's definitely a lot about how our senses, how our nerves can sense different materials and like what that measurement is like. I thought that was very fascinating. Definitely rabbit hole material <laughs> or yeah, getting together with Amanda and talking about it. I feel like mouth feel is something that has been around for a long time, but it was new to me. And as you start to think about engineering new proteins or proteins for meats, you want the meat to still have a feel to it that your palate is used to. A whole other rabbit hole science thing that we maybe want to get into. I will say probably with, with Ali Wing of Oobly, who we interviewed recently, and we'll have that episode released in a few weeks. I did want to say two things before we close out. One is last week, the Biden administration released their latest update on their bioeconomy executive order. And I think we will be doing a special episode just to talk about that and maybe go through some of the highlights. There was a lot to digest, a lot of big, ambitious goals. But I think what was really fascinating to know for our listeners is that multiple agencies at the federal level came together to draft their own versions of their contributions to the bioeconomy. So that includes the Department of Agriculture. Of course, the Department of Defense has a vested interest, the Department of Energy. So they all wrote many reports. And there was one that is just about how do we define these things and how are we going to measure them? The other thing I want to just end with is just by saying, okay, so this is our 19th episode, right, Iram? Yep, yep. And we have, we continue to joke or say that we're the fastest growing biotech podcast on the planet. 
because we have had an incredible number of plays. We're reaching 4,000, which is, I'm not going to say it's unheard of, but it is a good number for a small podcast like ours. And the last few episodes with Elliot Roth, Jasmina of Archaea, Suzanne Lee, and now Amanda serve as this mini section on biomaterials and biofabrication. And we're going to continue that with Charles Dimmler of Checker Spot. So it feels like there's been a little bit of a biomaterials and beauty theme. We're not done with that. There's more of those episodes to come. And then we're going to get into food. There's a lot of really cool stuff that we've got upcoming. Right, Iram, anything you want to say about our future episodes? Biomaterials and beauty and food. When we're talking about grow everything, that's a lot of those things besides like therapeutics, although food and therapeutics, there's a fine line between there. And we mentioned functional food in the past. I think there's definitely an episode to be had there. We'd like to hear from you, the listener, to see if there's any suggestions on who we should be speaking with. We'd like to think that we know a lot of biotech entrepreneurs and policymakers and investors. But I think we just scratched the surface. Even if you are someone that is making something and just feel like you have a very strong perspective, just write to us. We're open to speaking with people. We really want to make sure that people are heard. Look for all this in the show notes and stay tuned for more from Carl and myself on Grow Everything. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and thanks for supporting us. Bye.